What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome, everyone. A mixed picture for the markets as we kick off the first full week of May. The Dow and S&P are on track for their third straight down day for the first time in two months. Dow's down 202 points. S&P's down 13. NASDAQ bucking the trend today. This weekend, states across the nation started to open up, and cooped-up Americans have fled the confines of their homes. But despite a flurry of activity looking at sectors like travel, entertainment, and retail, it shows you that unless this trifecta gets back on track in a big way, the economy is going to be stuck in neutral. And we pick up on that very topic with Bob Bassani this afternoon. Hi, Bob. And I watched Warren Buffett over the weekend. A thing that surprised me was he didn't buy much. A great bargain hunter like him. I think a lot of people were surprised at that. Not that he got out of the airlines, but he didn't pick up some bargains out there. That, I think, is why we're down today. Let's just remind everybody what the risks are that we're dealing with right now for May. First, reopening might be slower than expected. I think a lot of people are feeling that. There you see the uh, the indexes. Uh, the S&P 500 is off of its lows now. In fact, it's recovered a good part of the lows. But reopening slower than expected. Uh, further downward earnings estimates if we, the economy reopens. Opening doesn't go the way everybody wants it to go. Uh, maybe some flagging fiscal monetary stimulus that aid to states and cities is being debated right now. And then there's that looming issue of China tariffs. The airlines really getting hurt as Mr. Buffett basically left that position completely. New low there for uh, LUV. That's a uh, uh, that's uh, one of the big airlines out there. Uh, American Air, United Air, Delta American, by the way, got a downgrade over at Barclays. Dow laggards, they're all cyclical names, all of the big industrial names, your Dow, your Raytheons, uh, Caterpillar, uh, Boeing, all to the downside. The leadership group, all the work from home stocks that have been benefiting uh, in the last couple of months. So uh, Walgreens, Walmart, Home Depot, Apple and Microsoft. Guys, back to you. All right, Bob. Thank you, Bob Bassani. We're also gearing up for another busy week of earnings season with 150 companies in the S&P giving their quarterly numbers. Analysts are expecting first quarter profits to be down 14 percent this year from last year. And this would be the largest annual drop since the financial crisis. Let's talk more about this, about some themes that Bob mentioned. I'm joined by Hugh Johnson. Now he's chief investment officer of Hugh Johnson Advisors. And Paul Christopher is head of global market strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Um, Hugh, there's a bunch of different places we could go, but I, I want to start on your kind of theme or idea here, which is that we need three conditions before we have the all clear for the stock market. And how many of the three have been met so far? Well, not much of them. You get, you're moving a little bit in the right direction. First thing you've got to have is you've got to have good performance, bull market type performance from the, uh, from the equity markets. And we're not seeing that yet. Uh, yes, the S&P is going up. But when you take a look at sector performance, we still see some of the defensive sectors are doing the best, like healthcare doing good, doing well, uh, Staples doing well. We're starting to see a little bit of a change there, though. We are seeing consumer discretionary technology stocks and communication services stocks do a little bit better. The second thing you'd like to see is you'd like to see some really good news or you'd like to see the market performance be in response to good news on the on the uh, pandemic. Uh, we're getting a little bit better news. There's some encouraging news, but quite frankly, it's not far enough along. Okay. And the third thing you really want to see is you want to see the market being priced right. In other words, it has to be undervalued. 
and you have to have widespread pessimism. We have to be sort of at an emotional extreme. And quite frankly, we're not there yet. We're still a little bit pricey or overvalued, about 9% overvalued over, over the level I think we're going to bottom out at. And the level of pessimism is a little bit high. So you've got three conditions. We're starting to move in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Things are getting a little bit better, but we're not there yet. I still think we've got about 9% left on the downside in the S&P 500 as, as a guess in an uncertain environment. Okay. And you say uh, because of everything that you've just described, you want people to be defensive, you know, overweight large cap equities, consumer staples, healthcare utilities, and so forth. Um, so, Paul, kind of keying off of that, we are obviously going to hear a lot more from companies this week with earnings and so forth. I mean, are, are you learning a lot from that? Are we finding out who has, you know, the stronger balance sheets? And are we getting real insight on on trends in the economy or or not? We're not getting a lot of new information on terms of who has the quality balance sheets. We already had a good, strong sense that that was going to be found in consumer discretionary, tech and comm services. Those are the, the results we've seen from this earnings report, this earnings season. We have a sense that analysts on the street are still too high with their earnings numbers. So it could be some choppiness in equity markets coming up. Yeah, so this week, we've sort of passed through the big tech companies. You know, it seems like some of the excitement is out of the air. Um, you would be unfavorable on uh, industrials, materials, uh, energy, and so forth. So, again, there seems to be a lot of consensus around, you know, be in the parts of the market that everybody seems comfortable with and avoid uh, the names that are out of favor. Paul, perhaps the most striking thing to me as well is, is what Bob Bassani mentioned, which is that, you know, Warren Buffett, Berkshire, they're not buying anything here. They've been talking for years about waiting to pounce on a big market opportunity. And maybe no one's come to them with one yet, but uh, they certainly they certainly haven't moved yet, have they? No, they haven't. But uh, we do think this is an environment where you can't put money to work. We do see valuation, a good value in financials. We think there will be a rebound in financials will benefit and the yield curve will eventually re-steepen. We like that play. Uh, we also recently moved into health care out of real estate, so we think that's another one that you could move into. And I'll, I'll finish by saying, look, you know, you, you've, got, you've got some high performers that are driving the market right now in tech, in comm services, and consumer discretionary. We think they continue to drive this market going forward, not just because of their size, but because this is the, this is the stay-at-home environment that we're in right now. Those companies will continue to be favored. Then, Hugh, final word, would you also be a buyer of the so-called stay-at-home stocks? Yeah, you know what I would be buying, and, and I'd be buying, i just starting to buy sort of the bull market sectors. Paul mentioned it. We're talking about consumer discretionary communication services and technology. I'd start to get a foothold in those stocks because one thing that's true about this, uh, this pandemic and this bear market and what's true of all bear markets and all pandemics as they end, this one, in my judgment, is going to end either in the third quarter or the first quarter of 2021, and you have to have some bull market stocks for that. And the ones Paul mentioned and the ones I just, sectors I just mentioned, are the ones you've got to have. So start to buy those sectors. All right. We'll have a little bit more on this later on as well. But for now, Hugh Johnson and Paul Christopher, thank you both. And we'll move on to the FDA news today. Uh, they're announcing they will tighten regulations on all those antibody tests on the market right now, a market that infectious disease expert Dr. Michael Osterholm recently described on this show as the wild, wild west. Let's get to Meg Terrell with what's changing on that front, Meg, and where we stand in the general race to find treatment. 
Yeah, quite a lot is changing today, Kelly. Remember back in March, the FDA basically opened the floodgates for these antibody tests to enter the market. And now they're saying they've actually detected some fraudulent tests that have been out there and they're trying to tighten the guidelines overall. So what the new regulations do is say that all companies must submit their validation data to the FDA within 10 days. They're also setting thresholds of what these tests need to meet in terms of sensitivity or their ability to detect true positives at 90% and specificity or the ability to detect true negatives at 95%. FDA also saying as of this point, it's authorized 12 tests, of course, including just recently from Roche, and it's reviewing more than 200. So that gives you some of the scope of just how many of these tests are out there on the market. And we also do want to update you on a story we've been talking about today about Gilead's remdesivir. We learned that the U.S. is going to be controlling distribution of that drug. And in a statement to our Ilan Mui just now, uh, Ilan Moy just now from FEMA, they said that remdesivir will be distributed directly to counties by the commercial provider based on an allocation plan approved by the White House Task Force. So we're learning that that White House Task Force is going to be making decisions about how this drug is being allocated. And analysts are saying this is really unprecedented in the history of the drug industry. And there is a question because of the limited supply of this drug, what's going to happen when it gets approved in other countries? Right. And we understand Europe is uh, reviewing it now. Japan may be approving it very soon. So it'll be a big question, Kelly. Right, because if Gilead can't make as much to meet a demand, somebody's going to have to choose who gets it first, right? I mean, is it going to be the company? Nope, it's going to be the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Uh, that's what we just learned from, from FEMA. So we know that the U.S. is controlling this distribution, yeah. uh, and they're going to be in control of where the drug goes. Yeah. And, Meg, on that Roche test, we, you know, we heard from the CEO a couple of weeks ago when he was furious about how poor the quality of the tests that were on the market were for, for those antibodies. Today we find out their test, they say, has 100 uh, percent positive detection, 99.8 uh, percent on the negative side. So they said only, what is that, two out of a thousand tests should ever come back with a false positive. Um, I know they can't be the whole market, but, you know, you really hope that that this test is the one that most people are getting, right? Yeah, absolutely. It just reminds us that not all these tests are created equal. If we are going to be getting these tests, we should look into what the specs are uh, and try to choose one that's very reliable. And even then, I was just talking with Scott Gottlieb about this. He says you should get multiple tests if you're positive to really confirm that's a true positive. He says probably get two. You know, one quick thing, Mike, finally on that, the Roche test said they said I think they have 100 processing centers already in place where these can be processed. But, you know, are, is that going to be enough for people to get th those results quickly, do you think? Are we going to be in a situation all over again with the COVID-19 tests themselves? I guess we're going to have to see. It does sound like antibody tests are an easier thing to process than the PCR tests that detect current infection. So it shouldn't see the same kinds of hiccups that we've seen. But of course, there is going to be huge demand. So we're going to have to watch how that goes. For sure. Uh, but at least, you know, the science, I guess uh, we'd call it, is more positive. Meg, thanks so much for updating us on all those fronts. Meg Terrell with the latest on the coronavirus. Coming up, some states are in a rush to reopen as their budget shortfalls swell. What if the federal government doesn't step in, we will ask. Plus, even as stocks rebound off their lows, a familiar problem has returned to the market. Can we follow the leadership? We will explore that. And could the pandemic lead to a bigger acceptance of online gambling across the country? The desperate rush for new sources of cash coming up. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. 
What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow not ruling out another stimulus package, but saying it may not be happening anytime soon. Let's get to Kayla Tausche with the very latest. Where do we stand, Kayla? Well, Kelly, senators come back to the Capitol this week, but there will not be discussions on that next stimulus package. I'm told by sources that the White House, the Treasury Department and Senate leadership are all in agreement that those discussions should not resume until all of the money from the existing programs has been dispersed and spent. That is not the case yet. According to a schedule for this week sent out by Leader McConnell's office, here is what is on tap. Votes on the inspector general for the nuclear regulator, other nominees related to the pandemic and national security, and also a reauthorization for the FISA court program that is currently expired. President Trump has said that Democrats have been in touch about this next stimulus package and said in a town hall on Fox News last night that more help is on the way. To be sure, the Treasury Secretary has even gone so far as to float some of these items, like infrastructure, incentives for restaurants, sports and entertainment businesses, a payroll tax cut for workers, and yes, some additional money for states as what the White House is looking for in a future package. But of course, those priorities, Kelly, uh, will be different from the Priorities on Capitol Hill from either party and that work toward a compromise uh, will again be hard fought. Meanwhile, the White House is working on a separate relief package on the regulatory and tax front. They're squarely focused, Kelly, on ways to incentivize businesses and to drive up demand as economic activity starts to build just a little bit. You know, Kayla, we just got this headline from The New York Times reciting an internal document that they obtained saying the CDC is projecting that by June the U.S. will see a surge in daily coronavirus cases from 25,000 to 200,000 and nearly a doubling of the daily death rate. Um, So I wonder, I mean, they're sort of speculating this is beneath some of the shift in rhetoric that we've seen from everybody from Scott Gottlieb to the president himself. Um, If this is borne out, I wonder how that changes the calculus, perhaps then adds more urgency for Congress uh, to step in with relief, especially if it means that those entertainment businesses don't see anything like the demand they would have they would have hoped. Well, Kelly, there are two things there. First, the president's rhetoric himself has shifted in recent days, even from 50 to 60,000 deaths to 70 to 80,000 deaths. And then just last night, uh, he has continued talking about this 100,000 Uh, figure for the death toll. And even that could be a conservative estimate if that document that the New York Times is reporting on holds clear. But the White House is also uh, continuing to say that this is dependent on states. Certainly there are states like Virginia, Maryland, D.C., where I am right now, where cases have not peaked, where certainly you have seen uh, the case count, the hospitalization rate continue to go up. And that is what's behind some of the caution uh, that has been uh, that that we've seen characteristic of Dr. Scott Gottlieb and some of his warnings there. So there are a few issues here. uh, But, Kelly, we'll see exactly how this plays out over the next few weeks and whether some of those states who have reopened when they see those surges in cases, whether they'll have to pull back, too, and what that means 
for the money that's going to be needed. Yep, absolutely. Kayla, thanks. Uh, we appreciate it. Kayla Tausche. Let's take a closer look now at how much more rescue money Congress is likely to pass, especially when it comes to state and local budgets. Joining me now is Michael Zizas. He's head of U.S. policy research at Morgan Stanley. Uh, Michael, you have a great note that kind of goes through all the states and the, the shortfalls that they're facing uh, and ultimately thinks legalizing, you know, gambling and, and other types of things are going to be one way of raising money. But that wouldn't that wouldn't do anything really to close these gaps. I mean, these are enormous gaps. Yeah, and that that helps on the margins. But we're expecting that through fiscal 2021, states cumulatively are going to fall short of their revenue projections, about one hundred and eighty billion dollars. Um, if they drain the reserves, if they flatten out spending, they can maybe get that number down to. $60 billion, but they do have other options. They can borrow from the Fed's municipal liquidity facility, which has about $250 billion available. So they can kind of spread that pain out over time. Uh, but still, you've got some tough choices that need to be made uh, this year down the road if Congress doesn't come in with another appropriation. Uh, one thing that I thought was a little bit hopeful uh as a resident of New Jersey, is you think that even though New Jersey and Illinois face much bigger budget holes, they could weather this somewhat better than a state like Texas, because New Jersey, Illinois, they have a lot of professionals who can work from home, still generate economic activity, whereas Texas, even unlike uh, 08, 09, they're facing a, a crash in the energy industry. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there, there's a couple of important differences here. So uh, at least the economic trajectory we're basing this number on is a sharper downturn, but it's shorter. The S&P 500 hasn't fallen as much, so you shouldn't get as much of a downdraft versus the global financial crisis and capital gains. Uh, and unemployment benefits are more generous because of the last CARES Act, and that's taxable in most places. And states tax online retail sales. Uh, they didn't do that before. So those are some of the ways that the revenue drop isn't as severe. Uh, but, of course, that still means you're going to have to make some tough choices, drain some reserves, uh, and austerity is part of this. And as we know, 75% of the state and local government component of the GDP is basically just public employee compensation. So there's still there will also be a drag on the broader economy sure. if there isn't another appropriation. So in other words, the message from your analysis is that even if there's a ton of stimulus on the federal level, there's actually going to be a lot of state and local austerity, which is felt by those workers primarily, but, but has ripple effects as well. I wonder what you thought of Mitch McConnell uh, floating the idea that states themselves perhaps should be able to file for bankruptcy. Yeah, we comment on on that, and we, we told muni investors in particular were worried about this, and our thought was that this wasn't a proposal that you should get too worried about. Uh, you know, One, we think that it would require a law getting through Congress, and we don't think the Democrats in the House of Representatives are particularly amenable to that when they're talking about um, increasing aid by hundreds of billions of dollars. And then there's actually a constitutional question as to whether or not states can actually declare bankruptcy, because it means giving up their sovereignty to a federal bankruptcy court. So uh, mm. I didn't view that as something investors should get too bothered about. Fair enough. So that brings us back to how the states are likely to try to make up these shortfalls. What other options do they have? I mean, even roughly speaking, what do you think in terms of online gambling? I don't know if we've already kind of seen the legalization wave for cannabis, if there's other sources of revenue they could turn to and if that would even make a difference. Yeah, I mean, th those things are on the table. Obviously, g generic tax increases uh, are also on the table. Uh, I think different states will choose different paths, but I think using some reserves, uh, flattening out spending year over year uh, takes care of a decent chunk of the problem. Maybe using the Fed's liquidity facility helps you spread pain over a couple of years uh, with the intent that 
a stronger economic uh, growth pattern over the next couple of years will replace some of that revenue. So, I mean, the good news is that the state budget pain, which is really acute right now, you can spread out and it alleviates a lot of the immediate credit concerns in a place like the muni market. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the states aren't functionally in a worse position today than they were uh, before all this started. Oh, for sure. And, you know, some of them, it was, it was bad enough already. I guess my final question then, from what you're describing, by being able to smooth things out, use the uh, Fed's liquidity facility, I mean, do they really need then a big rescue package from Congress on top of the funds that they've already received? If it sounds like they could find ways between that liquidity and, and revenue or spending smoothing, I guess, of, of getting through this on their own? Yeah, well, it's it's basically it's two different choices. It's either you smooth out economic pain over time or you attempt to alleviate the economic pain or sort of keep it from happening. So if the federal government wanted to appropriate $100 billion to the states right now, we think this would largely fill the austerity hole, uh, which is different than the Fed saying you can spread that out over a couple of years. So it's just a, to- a choice between two different styles of approaching the budget stress. All right. We'll see which they and, and many choose. Uh, Michael, thanks very much. Thank you. Michael Zizis with Morgan Stanley. Coming up here on The Exchange, as states begin to reopen, some workers are facing a difficult choice. Turn down a job and you could lose your unemployment benefits. We'll have more on that. Plus, be prepared for a stock to fall 50%. That's what Warren Buffett advises when choosing investments. And he himself hasn't been immune lately. We'll have the latest. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back. Now to the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for our headlines. Sue. Thank you very much, Kelly. Hello, everyone. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo is warning residents that reopening the economy all at once would likely cause a resurgence in the number of cases. I get the whole liberate movement. Uh, There's no reason for a uh, closing of anything. Just open everything up and let everybody go do whatever they want to do. I get that argument. Yes, people want to get out. On the other hand, we want to do it in a responsible way. And the Miami Dolphins revealing plans on how they intend to maintain social distancing at Hard Rock Stadium once games kick off there again. The stadium normally holds 65,000 people. That would drop down to just 15,000 fans under the new guidelines. You're up to date. You can get more on our coronavirus coverage by going to CNBC.com. 
Kelly, back to you. Interesting. Sue, thanks very much. Sue Herrera, reopening the economy is posing a dilemma to some workers who might be left feeling they have to choose between their health or their livelihood. Rahel Solomon joins me to explain. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Yeah, it's a dilemma for a lot of workers who, as you said, have to decide. Do you return to work when you think it's still potentially unsafe or risk losing your unemployment benefits? Federal guidelines state that a refusal to work could mean forfeiting those benefits. In fact, a lot of the state labor offices that we spoke to say that while, yes, each case is specific, a general assertion that your workplace is unsafe because of coronavirus, that will not suffice. They say you have to demonstrate why your workplace is unsafe. Although they do say that each employee who feels this way should reach out to their employer and try to reach some sort of agreement. So we spoke to a worker in El Paso, Texas. Her name is Dulce Marquez. She says that her immunity, her immune system is really low, is really weak, and that when she realized that her restaurant in Texas was reopening last Friday, she was panicked. I literally stayed up the whole night on Wednesday. I did not sleep for one second because I was so worried and so scared. And I feel like I have so much anxiety right now. So Dulce says that she explained her condition to her manager and her concerns, and they both agreed that she should stay home for now. But Kelly, this is also a concern for employers. In fact, the state of Colorado reports more than 120, 124 to be exact, refusals to work. So it's a challenge for workers but also for employers as they try to reopen, Kelly. And it's so complicated because, like you said, if they are refusing to return or if they, I guess if they don't take an, an available job, you could potentially lose your benefits? No, that's exactly what it is. And, and that was prior to coronavirus, but that's still very much intact in the midst of the pandemic. So what it's coming down to is if your employer takes certain precautions, making sure that you can socially distance, making sure that there are hand washing stations, making sure that uh, as best as humanly possible, they are protecting you. It could be really hard to prove that that's an unsafe working environment. Mm -hmm. But again, for people like Dulce, who have a weak immune system, they just don't feel like now is is the time for them to be returning to work. They feel like it's still too dangerous. Yeah, no, great reporting. Rahel, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Rahel Solomon on the dilemma a lot of workers do face. Coming up, he called for a relief rally two days before the bottom, nailed his forecast for the S&P during it, and now he's got a new message for investors. Steeple's head of equity joins us ahead. And usually Warren Buffett buys what others are selling, but this time he sold the airlines as everyone else did too. We have full details ahead. Welcome back to The Exchange. NASDAQ hanging on to a four-point gain. Dow's down 213. Let's get a further check on the markets and some of the big movers today with Dom Chu. Dom? All right, so Kelly, we got the Dow, the S&P, and NASDAQ all moving to the down. Well, the NASDAQ is now just about flat, but at the lows of the session, the Dow was down by around 362 points right after the opening bell. The S&P lost 33 points at its lows of the day. Now, on a sector basis, you can see here it's a bit of a mixed picture. Energy and technology, economically sensitive sectors outperforming. But some of those same economically sensitive or cyclical sectors are also lagging as well. Check out those financials and industrials there. Now, some of the stocks to watch today, you've got Tyson Foods, which is down over 8%, one of the worst performers in the S&P. The meat processing giant reported profits and sales that both missed analyst forecasts due in large part to the effects of the coronavirus pandemic, adding that it cannot say when those challenges will end. But right now, it's not all negative. Shares of Roku higher as investors continue to gauge how much streaming video companies are benefiting from increased demand due to coronavirus lockdowns. Roku reports earnings, by the way, on Thursday. And then shares of Tesla also looking to snap 
snap a two-day losing streak, rebounding following CEO Elon Musk's tweets late last week saying that the electric car maker's stock price was too high. So those two stocks in the green in an otherwise red day. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you. Let's get to some of the other big calls of the day. And we begin with Disney making headlines with a new Star Wars film and a streaming service for Disney Plus today. Remember, it's May 4th. May the 4th be with you. Okay, Moffat Nathanson, though, is downgrading the company today to neutral with a $112 target. They believe the economic impact on Disney from COVID will be longer than most anticipate, especially given the risks of a second wave of infections. They warn that shares are in for a stretch of lowered earnings. Disney shares are down almost 4% today. Next to Big Lots, which is being upgraded by Telsey Advisory Group to outperform with a $31 target, Telsey met with the CEO and CFO and came away with increased confidence in their strategic transformation plan. They also say that Big Lots is in solid financial position. Uh, this is sometimes mentioned as a beneficiary of the stay-at-home trade, but today it's down half a percent. And we end with American Airlines now being cut by Barclays to underweight with a $7 target. They're warning that American's sizable debt burden limits the carrier's ability to dynamically respond to economic reopening. They also caution there's little room for error for current equity holders as pension liabilities present an additional challenge. American shares are down 10.5% today to about $9.50. And it's not just them. The entire industry is down. These moves come after Warren Buffett has announced at his annual shareholder meeting, she backs up, that Berkshire had sold its entire stake in the airline sector. Mr. Buffett saying the future is much less clear about how the business will turn out and that it's changed in a very major way. This was just many of the attention-grabbing headlines we heard from the Oracle. Becky Quick joins us this afternoon with some of the other highlights as well. Becky? Hey, Kelly. Nice dance in there. I like that. <laughs> I'll do it with you. Anyway, Warren Buffett took the stage, as always, at the CenturyLink Center in Omaha. The big difference this time, though, the center was completely empty. None of the 40,000 or so shareholders who usually attend was there. But that doesn't mean that his message wasn't heard. Never bet against America. That's what Buffett said. He walked listeners through all kinds of difficult times. America's survival in the past, everything from the Civil War to the Great Depression. And Buffett said that we would weather this storm, too. But if you thought he was issuing a screaming buy signal, you better think again. I'm not recommending that people buy stocks today or tomorrow or next week or next month. I think it all depends on your circumstances, but you shouldn't buy stocks unless you expect, in my view, you, you expect to hold them for a very extended period and you are prepared financially and psychologically to hold them the same way you would hold a farm and never look at a quote and never, uh, never pay it. You don't need to pay attention to them. I mean, the main thing to do, uh, and you're not going to pick the bottom and you're not going to, nobody else can pick it for you or anything of the sort. You've got to be prepared to, when you buy a stock, to have it go down 50% or more and be comfortable with it as long as you're comfortable with the holding. Now, Buffett did offer some high praise to Jay Powell, the Federal Reserve chairman. He said that Powell's actions during this period elevated him to a level that Buffett had previously reserved only for Paul Volcker. Jay Powell, in my view, and the, and, the, and, the, and the Fed board belong up there on that pedestal because with him because uh, they acted in the middle of March, probably somewhat instructed by what they'd seen in 2008 and nine. Uh, uh, they reacted in a huge way uh, and essentially allowed what's happened since that time to play out the way it has. Uh, March, where the market had essentially frozen, 
close a little after mid-month, ended up, because the Fed took these actions on March 23rd, it ended up being the largest month for corporate debt issuance, I believe, in history. And then April followed through and was even a, was even, with even a larger month. And you saw all kinds of companies grabbing everything, coming to market, and spreads actually narrowed. And, and uh, every one of those people that issued bonds in late March and April I sent a thank you letter to the Fed because it would not have happened if they hadn't operated with really unprecedented speed and determination. That action from the Federal Reserve, in fact, may be why Berkshire hasn't spent more of its cash hoard, which has ballooned to $137 billion. And Buffett acknowledged that. He said that lots of companies were able to get access to the public markets and get better rates than they would have gotten from Berkshire Hathaway as a result. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Uh, you know, we're trying some new things over here. Um, so on the airlines, yeah, Becky, it's um, it's fascinating uh-huh. because the, I mean, he had finally just said, oh, you know, he's been he's been so over the years insistent on the fact that they are uninvestable. He finally goes and invests in a swath of them. And now this happens and he's exited the positions all again. I mean, it's it, it's almost like a Moby Dick. He's Captain Ahab or something. Right. In fact, some of the questions that came in from shareholders asked just that. Why didn't you call Airline Aholics Anonymous before you made uh, this <laughs> investment this time around? His point was, look, when we made the investment, it was a reasonable decision. We thought we were going to get, get about a billion dollars in earnings from those companies. And that made sense when you were putting the money in at that point. He said, when the facts change, you got to change your opinion with it. And that's what he does. He says when he changes his mind, he does it all the way not partway, and that's why he sold those stakes down to zero. I love it. Words to live by. By the way, there's TikTok videos filmed all over our neighborhood. It's like such a fun little thing. You can do it social distance. Come on, do it with me. <laughs> I'm not. I don't have the moves, she said. She tried. Uh, Clearly, I don't either. Yeah. <laughs> not that it stops me. <laughs> Becky, thanks. It's good to see you. We appreciate it this afternoon. See Becky Quick uh, following okay. the latest moves from Warren Buffett. Turning to oil now, a standoff over production cuts in Texas has ended with the proposal being withdrawn. Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton now says there are not enough votes to pass the one million barrel per day cuts that had been proposed. You may remember RRC Chairman Wayne Christian expressing some hesitation to curtail uh, cuts when he joined us on this program 10 days ago. On the back of this news, WTI crude is taking it in stride. It's still up a little under 3% right now. Coming up, Ohio is one of the many states starting to reopen, and Columbus is just one of the cities there in a big financial crunch. We're going to speak with the mayor about his plans to weather this ahead. Plus, despite the market's plunge and dramatic rebound this year, we're back to a familiar old problem, and it could make it harder for the move to keep going. Stay with us. Welcome back. Florida is scheduled to reopen certain businesses throughout the state beginning today. With the exception of some of its hardest hit counties, NBC's Sam Brock is live in Clearwater Beach, Florida, with the very latest on these moves. Sam? Kelly, good afternoon. There is this entire ecosystem here in Florida that is all tied to the beach. Over my shoulder here, you see hotels and restaurants, retail stores. Those are opening up slowly today. Where we are right now, which is Pinellas County, is in the Tampa Bay area. This is part of the the sections of Florida that are reopening today in terms of restaurants and retail, a quarter capacity for restaurants. You can sit outside, Kelly, but it also means you have to be six feet apart. But for three major counties and economic engines in this state, Miami-Dade County, Broward County, and Palm Beach County, they are excluded from those plans. When we talk about jobs right now, 
You've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.2 million plus jobs tied to hospitality in the state of Florida. That was the case before coronavirus. Here in Pinellas County, you have somewhere in the effect of 150,000 jobs between Pinellas and Hillsborough counties, the neighboring county. So many jobs tethered to tourism, Kelly, and we don't know how many of those actually survived, but thousands have been lost. Furloughs, of course, as well, are, are pervasive throughout the industry. What we are seeing today right now, though, is the beginning of beaches opening and restaurants opening. Now, they're doing it very carefully, I might add. There are signs when you walk in that say there has to be six feet of social distancing. You're generally not seeing large crowds beyond 10, although, as you see my, over my shoulder, there are some groups gathering. Police have tried to be on top of that. But they know this is a vital cog to getting things going again here in Florida. And it is with very trepidatious, very slow steps they're trying to get things back online, especially, Kelly, after what we saw on this very beach, Clearwater Beach, six weeks ago for spring break. You remember those images? So many people concerned that that level of congestion could be spreading the virus. So slow baby steps in Florida. That's what we're seeing right now is they are trying to re-energize the economy here and throughout the state. Yeah, Kelly? now it too seems like air conditioning may be a bigger threat uh, than the open uh than the outdoors. Uh, Sam, thanks. Sam Brock is in Clearwater Beach for us. We appreciate it. That would be it. nice. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Another state preparing to reopen is Ohio. According to a recent Brookings study, four of the five cities there facing the biggest fiscal impact from the pandemic, all in Ohio. Columbus taking the top spot. Joining me now is Andrew Ginther. He is the mayor of Columbus, Ohio. Uh, mayor, it's good to have you. Welcome. And I understand the reason why you guys are so, um, I guess, hit by this is most of your income is income tax. And obviously, uh, employment has taken a, a, a big hit. Yeah, we're very unique here in Ohio. Only 2% of local governments across the country are funded by an individual income tax. And so that puts Ohio cities, uh, uh, you know, at very grave risk. And we have uh, colleagues in cities around the state that are already furloughing and laying off employees. And as you know, basic city services all focus around safety and health. And so cops and firefighters will be part of those folks laid off. But 78% of our revenue for core city services comes from income tax. And uh, so, you know, obviously, we've got a very diverse economy here. Um, our largest uh, private sector employers, many of those employees have worked remotely, so they're continuing to pay income tax. But we also uh, have, you know, major, uh, you know, public sector employers uh, here in central Ohio as well. And yeah. so, you know, with reduced revenue, obviously uh, contemplating reductions in workforce. Sure. And I want to go more into that, but I also want people to be aware of, and we're showing some of these companies that are headquartered in Ohio. They actually include a lot of retailers, Abercrombie & Fitch, DSW Express, and yes. L Brands. Uh, is that an additional hit, or are the other companies there, Scott's Miracle Grow, you know, American mm -hmm. Electric Power Utility, are they able to kind of offset the direct hit? And, and I should mention, as you discuss this, I mean, you guys kind of helped to lead the way uh, out of the 0809 downturn. You did you know, quite well, and, and maybe uh, in that way helped Ohio recover. It seems like it could be very different this time around. Absolutely. And, you know, we, you know, the metros of Ohio um, provide 80 percent of the economy. We had the fastest growing economy in the Midwest before uh, COVID-19. Uh, and you're right. I mean, before the Great Recession, Columbus was thought to be recession proof because of the balance and the diversity of our economy. But, uh, you know, this is what we learned after the Great Recession is no one is recession proof. And so there is going to be a hit here. We're already looking at reductions in revenue for the second and third quarter. 
uh, contemplating does this become a larger re- recession that lasts into next year, or uh, are we able to recover faster than that? But you you mentioned the Brookings report, uh, and because of Ohio's over reliance on income tax revenue for local governments and cuts at the state level uh, in the local government fund, it's put a lot of Ohio cities in in a dangerous situation. So what options do you have now? Other sources of taxes, you know, property taxes, uh, maybe emergency sales taxes, that sort of thing? Or do you just try to fix this by cutting revenues, which I imagine, you know, you can only cut so much? Absolutely. And there are many cities around around Ohio that made cuts to the bone, you know, before the Great Recession. And so they are just offering the the basic essential services now. We have about $100 million in savings for, you know, roughly a billion-dollar general fund budget. And so we have uh, some resources to try to weather this storm. But we're also making hard decisions. You know, obviously, uh, no travel. uh, And we've been able to realize about $25 million in savings just during the first quarter or so, um, you know, by, you know, tightening our belts and looking at what we're spending resources on. And even those resources that had already been appropriated, uh, you know, we held back on anticipating, um, you know, the economic crisis that we're trying to weather right now. Is it possible that your revenue, if they're income tax related, will be more delayed than uh, destroyed? Um, there is that possibility, um, but this is why the fourth round of stimulus is so important, why we're pushing so hard, and we're really blessed. We have a bipartisan uh, coalition of U.S. Senators, Senator Rob Portman and Senator Sherrod Brown, that have made funding for uh, states and local governments to replace lost revenue a top priority as we move into phase four and additional flexibility. We receive resources through the CARES Act um, that we need additional flexibility to help deal with some of the negative of economic impacts that have happened as a result of this, but it makes phase four so important. Uh, and quite honestly, since cities and metros, uh, not just in the state, around the country, are so important to any kind of sustainable growth recovery, uh, those metro areas have to be safe. I chair the Metro Economies Council for the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and many of the reports that we've done show just how critically important our metros are to our local, state, and Mm -hmm. national economy. Absolutely. Uh, Mayor Ginther, thank you. Uh, Best wishes to you. And uh, it's it's fascinating. Never would have thought that your community in Ohio would be at the top of the list here in terms of vulnerability. Thanks for uh, joining me to explain. Thank you. Mayor Ginther, uh, Mayor Andrew Ginther, I should say, of Columbus, Ohio. Coming up, my next guest called the March bottom and the rebound in energy stocks. Now he says this market rally may be over. He makes his case next. Speaking of energy, take a look at some of the oil stocks today. They're in the green, uh, bucking the overall trend. Valero up nearly 4%. So is Hess, Marathon Petroleum, National Oil Well up 1, uh, 1.1. Again, some green spots for a hard-hit sector lately. We'll be right back. Welcome back. A familiar old problem for the market is rearing its head even after all we've been through this year. Mike Santoli joins me now with the details. Mike. Yeah, Kelly. In fact, on a few different fronts, the market's running into some familiar old challenges, one of which is just the absolute level that the uh, the market has gotten to after that big April rally, which culminated last Wednesday. Uh, levels of around 29.50 on the S&P 500, up over 60 percent from the recent lows. 
Both of those areas represent perhaps a little bit of a friction point. It was a high in 2018 and again last spring in 2019. Uh, it just seems as if it's kind of a, a moment to assess if, in fact, the market has run ahead of itself. And then uh, you obviously have this top-heavy nature of the index itself. We've all been talking about how five stocks represent more than 20% of the index. That's both virtue and vulnerability. Obviously, in a day like today, those big long-term growth stocks are holding the indexes up. They do provide valuation support, but also arguably create a little bit of an unstable market if it gets too lopsided. Final thing I would note is the credit markets. This equity rally is likely to go only as far as the newly rejuvenated uh, credit markets for corporate credit uh, let it go. Uh, and right now, it's wide open. You're seeing a ton of new issuance by companies. That's refreshing balance sheets. But if you look at things like junk bond spreads, they have really not improved in three weeks, even as the equity market has carried higher. So all those things represent a little bit of uh, maybe some opposing currents that this rally will have to go through uh, or perhaps back off a little bit before it makes more progress. Yep. Well stated, Mike. Thank you. Michael Santoli, my next guest called for a significant market rally back on March 21st near the lows, predicting the S&P would hit 2950 by the end of April. And we just about got there. But now he says this recovery rally has likely run its course. More, let's welcome in Barry Bannister. He's head of institutional equity strategy for Stiefel Financial. Barry, uh, tell me why. Well, thanks, Kelly. Uh, yeah, we got off the... Um risk rally on uh, after the close of the April 29th. And uh, we've seen a 5% pullback for stocks since then. I do think investors are worried more about an L-shaped non-recovery outcome in the second half. You know, it's a self-imposed depression, and it's pretty frightening for consumers, business, and uh, it's affecting market sentiment in general. Right. And the interesting thing here, though, is that you connect this directly with the Fed. Uh, tell me about your strategy in, generally, in general as it relates to the Fed and what you think happens this time around. Well, it's, the Fed has tended to act uh, only after an event. So if there's a shock, it's, uh, uh, the Fed steps in. So it's best to step out until the Fed steps in. And when we saw the Fed um, somewhat satisfied with what they'd already done, we felt like uh, a lot of the bad news uh, had been mitigated. The price had risen. Um, intraday, we did hit 29.50 on April 29th. So I pulled the plug on uh, April 29th after the close. So now, uh, where does you know, if you're in a scenario where you say we're going to kind of require another shock in order for the Fed to do something, well, why can't we just have neither? <laughs> can't we just sit here and say, well, we don't need the shock and we don't need the Fed to do more? Why do you think both of those uh, that that sequence of events is likely to play out? Well, it's not, it's not entirely the Fed. I mean, we've got uh, consumers are just terrified. Uh, business is skittish that they won't be able to turn a profit with social distancing. Um, we've got some state governments uh, drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak, and delaying the reopening. So I think a perspective is important. Um, what we have right now is a fear multiplier. If you think about it, COVID lifted the normal annual death rate in the U.S. by about 2.5%. But that's been magnified many times over by fear. And so my, my concern, and I think it's starting to be reflected in the market, is that a prolonged or recurrent shutdown is going to be the economic policy equivalent of Jonestown for GDP. Mm-hmm. And we just can't afford that if you're investing this long at 2800 plus for the S&P. So what you're saying is if, we, if the virus causes more shutdowns in the future, there's no way we have 2818 on the S&P where we are today. My question to you is what if there are no more shutdowns because there's no appetite for it amongst uh, much of the public? Yeah, I don't think there is an appetite for it, and I sure don't think politicians would take the risk as well. I think we have to adapt to it. 
Um, but uh, that would mean that we will probably see the efforts to reflate the economy through fiscal and monetary policy uh, really get some traction. And when that happens, what will happen is PE multiples would contract even if earnings recover. And so the stock market would just tread water for quite a while. And is that, Barry, a last question, your call? So you raised your, you know, your price target, obviously, at the lows to 29.50. We hit that level, you said, then you kind of moved to the sidelines. Uh, what's the call now that we stay or that we don't run back above 29.50 for the remainder of the year? Yeah, I think the little rally we've had since uh, April 29th where the defensive stocks, uh, and I'm thinking utilities, healthcare, consumer staples, uh, they had a little bounce after having sold off. During the big upturn in the market, it was risk on. And so the cyclicals, everything from uh, technology to energy to financials, industrials, they did very well. Um, I think that as we get economic traction, if we don't have any more shutdowns or talk of that, if we get reopening going in the second half, I would favor the cyclical stocks as we close out the year. Um, and that's what I'll be emphasizing mostly. Since I don't see a lot of S&P upside, what I'm focused on is sector and industry and then eventually stock selection. Sure. So there you heard it from Barry Bannister. If you think we get some traction here, uh, the cyclicals are the place to go. Barry, thanks so much. It's good to see you again. Thanks, Kelly. Or hear from you, uh, as is the case these days. Barry Bannister is head of equity strategy at Stiefel. Don't go anywhere. Coming up, we're going to speak with a doctor who says reopening the economy is very risky right now because of the big gap between the perception that things are better and the reality, he says, that they're not. Plus, college is in crisis. The University of Michigan bracing for a billion-dollar hit. We're going to speak with President Dr. Mark Schlissel about that ahead. Tyler Matheson and Power Lunch are on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.